Hey everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is Rattlecast number 38. Thanks so much for joining us, and sorry for the delay in the start. Um, there's a button that if I click it, it's like a dangerous red button that I should never click, because every time I does, my computer freezes and I can't come back, and um, that's exactly what I did tonight. So I had to restart my entire computer. Uh, but we're back, so thanks so much for joining us tonight on uh, Rattlecast number 38. Our guest tonight is George Bilgier. We'll get to him in just a moment, but as everybody trickles in, we will do our warm-up poem, as we always like to do. And um, the warm-up poem for today, I thought, now tonight is the peak of the uh, Learids meteor shower. And this is not a poem about meteor showers, but uh, we're going to be going on a hike, a night hike with the kids, as soon as this show's done. And um, we are going to check out the meteor shower from a peak near town. And, and it made me think of this poem, Northern Lights, by Mark Jarman, which we published back in Rattle number 25. Um, it's one of my favorite poems we have, we've ever published, to be honest. And uh, I'm going to read it for you now as everybody settles in and gets your beverage of choice and whatever you'd like to do. Uh, here it comes. This is uh, Northern Lights by Mark Jarman. Northern Lights. They were all white, passing through their stages and sheets and ladders, rivulets and falls, white, a dream of color or an aftermath of color stripped to gauze and gossamer, a white electric squall in a half, in half the sky, epiphany for the blind and veils of tears, Magdalene's tears, the tears that Jesus wept. What draws them forth? Mortality and laughter, the sad and funny fact that you will die, and that you've made your children, they will die. They hold that. Do they hold that against you? My parents made me. They went ahead and made me child of love, child of loving union, which would end, which, but which I grew up thinking would not end. The northern lights remind me of their love. The drama of my growing up was love as they performed it, everyone noticing the scintillating cosmic imagery of two who seem to be made for each other, as light is made for sheets of summer darkness, as darkness in high summer accepts light. Why did I ever think that they were gods? But I didn't. I thought they were people. People love each other for a lifetime. Gods are as fickle as the northern lights. Don't ever think of human beings you love and need as like those shifting shimmerings, no matter how liquescent, memorable, enduring against the immortal darkness of the sky. The northern lights will break your heart and heal it in the same motion, raveling and unraveling. They are the background music of creation, the song God sang while sinking into rest, the song descended into words and music, oblivious and yet ready to break hearts, heartbreaking and yet in the end oblivious. So I have thought about a years ago night, the northern lights, above a northern mountain, and how the tears came down and why, forgetting that there is nothing oblivion won't forgive. And that was Mark Jarman's poem, The Northern Lights, from Rattle number 25. Uh, that's our warm-up poem for today. Mark Jarman, um, his latest collections of poetry are The Heronry and Bonefires, New and Selected Poems, both from Saraband Books. And he is the Centennial Professor of English at Vanderbilt University. So that's Mark Jarman. And that is our warrant for poem for tonight. Hope you enjoyed that. Now, tonight's uh, featured poet is uh, George Bilgier uh, and his new book, Blood Pages, and um, from University of Pittsburgh Press. George Bilgier is the author of six poetry collections, most recently Imperial. His work, 
The White Museum was chosen by Alicia Suskin Ostriker for the Autumn House Poetry Series. The Good Kiss was selected by Billy Collins for the University of Akron Poetry Award. He has won numerous other awards, including the Midland Authors Award, the Mae Swenson Poetry Award, and the Pushcart Prize. His poems have appeared in numerous anthologies and journals, including Poetry, Plowshares, the Kenron Review, Folkham, and the Best American Poetry Series. And here he is, uh, George Bilgier. Hi, George. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Tim. I am uh, I'm doing well. I'm here in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, sitting here, this is my kitchen. Um, and I was thinking, you know, this is the way we're, what, five weeks into the, the coronavirus shutdown, and all of these TV hosts are doing their broadcasts, you know, from their kitchens. There, you can see Steve Colbert's bedroom, you know, Conan's living room. <laughs> This, maybe this is what TV is going to be like in the future. No studios. It's all broadcast direct from the kitchen. I think, I think that's how it should be. There's really no reason to have all the elaborate stuff. People don't even like it. Like, I, don't, I can't even stand watching TV. Like, I was watching, um, I don't know if you saw uh, Chris Cuomo, yeah. that clip of him, like, pretending yeah. to emerge from his quarantine. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and, you know, it's just so fake. And, uh, exactly. and yeah, but yeah. the Rattlecast is, is real. So uh, thanks for joining us from your kitchen, George. Um, yeah, well, I, I have a chance to see your room there, too. And I like that painting behind your right ear. That's yeah, nice. that's, that's the cover of my book, actually. It's a fractal. Ah. It looks American fractal. And uh, that's a drawing someone did for it, um, Stacy Reed. And it's a, it's a fractal. Mm. She uses math to make art. So it's a, it's a cool painting. I like that a lot. Um, I mean, do you want to start? A... Yeah, I could. I could tell it was a fractal from the moment I saw it. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you want to start us out with a poem? Uh, yeah, by all means. Um, uh, since we're talking, this this is a poem uh, that has appeared in Rattle, and uh, I was thinking it kind of speaks to everybody being shut in, staying at home. I mean, I've been at home with my wife and two kids for five weeks now, and actually we're really enjoying it. I don't think you're supposed to say that, but um, we're having, in, in a strange way, it's been such a wonderful bonding experience. But this poem called Pancake Dilemma uh, was written a couple of years ago, but it, it could have been written this morning. Pancake Dilemma. Another subway station blows up in Europe. It's right there on the front page. And I'm about to pour some syrup on my pancakes. But perhaps I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I should just put the syrup down out of respect for the victims and their families. Yet who is there to witness my sacrifice, my gesture of solidarity, however small with the international community? My wife is playing with my son in the living room. I'm at the table by myself, and I could just go ahead and pour the syrup and smear on some butter and think compassionately about the victims while eating the pancakes while they're hot. No one will benefit from my eating cold pancakes. Instead, I call out to my wife from the living room, another subway blew up in Europe. They think it's terrorists. But she doesn't hear me. The TV's turned up for Paul Patrol. So I just sit here quietly for a moment, then start eating the pancakes, trying not to enjoy them too much. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, George. 
that that is a perfect poem to start out. I remember when we came across that poem. Um, we had a son. I think you said your son is in first grade. Ours is in uh, kindergarten. Yeah. So they they loved Paw Patrol at the exact same time. And yeah, when we got that yeah. poem, we thought Paw Patrol. <laughs> yeah, Paw Patrol. And it's funny as your kids age. I mean, you get to know these shows really well, right? You watch them with them for months, and then they age out of those shows and you don't see them anymore and you, you start missing them. And every now and then I'll go back and, you know, watch an old Paw Patrol. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame me. It's not a bad show. They always, they always solve the problem in 18 minutes, which is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, life should be. Um, so I should say, if anybody has any questions for George Belgier, I'm, I'm monitoring uh, both Facebook and uh, YouTube, not so much Twitter or uh, Periscope because I can only look at so many screens at once. But, um, um, if you uh, have any questions for George, just pass them, pass them on the chat windows there and I will pass them along. But George, I was wondering, how did you get into poetry? That's one of the things I'm always curious about when I talk to poets. Um, cause it feels to me like such a strange thing that I ended up being, yeah. a, you know, into poetry and having a job like this. Uh, it's something I never would have predicted when I was, you know, yeah. 18, let alone uh, five watching Paw Patrol or whatever the equivalent was, Scooby-Doo. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. so how did that happen? Like, how did you end up being a poet and what, um, what draws you to poetry? You said, you know, like all journeys, it was a strange journey filled with, uh, misadventure and accident. But first of all, I was lucky enough to grow up in a house, uh, full of books. My parents loved to read and we had a huge, in the, the two walls of our living room were books as I was growing up. So I was a voracious reader as a kid, but I never thought about being a writer. Um, and there was this sort of family pressure uh, pointing me toward med school. And I was a bio major and I went to uh, UC Riverside, California, oh, and as uh, doing pre-med. And everything was going really well until uh, I, I came to uh, chemistry. And it, chemistry and I just did not get along. And I was really doing badly in the class. And I went to my advisor and she said, look, um, just drop the class, take it again next term and take only one other class, focus everything on chemistry, just take another class. And she, I'll, I'll never forget, she said, you know, a no brainer class, like uh, creative writing. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. So I, I took, uh, a creative writing course, a poetry workshop. And the first poem the instructor showed us um, was uh, that James Wright poem, Autumn Comes to Martin's Ferry, Ohio, about the kids playing football in this uh, rust bucket town and their dismal lives and their the hopeless lives of their parents and the struggle of their moms. And it's a short, intense poem, but it absolutely blew me away. Like a lot of people in college, I mean, I encounter students like this all the time. I kind of thought poetry stopped at around 1800, maybe, you know, Keats somewhere there. I had no idea that living, breathing people were writing about football and getting laid off at the steel mill. And that poem was like etched in electricity on the page. And I thought, man, I've, I'm home. These are my people. And I also love the fact the pre-med kids at 11 o'clock at night were on the fifth floor of the library in a study group. 
And the poets were all off at some little cantina somewhere, you know, listening to music and reading poems. So it was a, it's a much more congenial world. And so, yeah, I stuck with it. I became an English major and um, uh, went on and got a, a, a master's degree and then a doctorate and kept on writing poems. And now I'm teaching in a university. That's so funny because that was exactly my story. <laughs> Yeah, I was a molecular. Even chemistry. Yeah, I, well, I I um I didn't I didn't have a problem with doing uh, chemistry classes, but I thought it was so boring, and uh, I was taking, um, you know, a bunch of labs, biochemistry labs, and things, and um, the thought of you know I took uh, poetry classes with James Longenbach at the University of Rochester as, as an oh. elective. And um, the thought of going to do a lab when I could be reading really cool poems <laughs> and writing poems yeah. was just so I started faking labs and uh, just making up the results and um, which I really should not yeah. have done. But I did. <laughs> and um, and yeah. then I ended up, you know, I started, oh, well, I'll just dual major in English and in biochemistry. And then I'll, uh, you know, well, maybe I just don't even need to do biochemistry because I can't imagine sitting in a lab forever. And uh, when this exactly. is more and it was um, and that 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 uh, poem um, the right poem that I've wasted my life is the last, you know, a oh, different yeah. poem, but, but the same kind of thing. I'm like, oh, God, I'm wasting my life sitting here running uh, electrolysis thing. gels. Like that is not the center of the, the universe. And uh, but poetry is in a really weird way. Um, Ele electrolysis gels can get bored. <laughs> they can. <laughs> they... A friend of mine, a, a friend of mine, John Donahue, the guy that I do, uh, I do a weekly radio show called wordplay with John. And he was reading, a bio of a poet, and I forget the I forget the poet's name, but this poet was asked the same question: How did you become a poet? And he he had been something like an engineering major who took a creative writing class, and he got his first poem or short story back, and there was commentary on it written by the instructor. This poem is it, this is a beautiful poem. I was deeply moved by the story of your parents and their marriage, and the guy thought. You know, I've been an engineering major for two years. I have never been praised for using math to solve an engineering problem. All you get is a percentage. And here is praise. And here are human words talking about me and my life. And, uh, yeah, that's what draws me to it. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing. And I'm so glad people do it. Um, what is your philosophy about um, writing a poem? Like, how do you approach the blank page? Do you, um, one of the things that I was going to say, I, um, I was reading your book earlier today and, um, I get to read one book a week now, which is great. Cause I, for a long time, I didn't get to read any, uh, contemporary actual books of poetry. Um, uh, but I was reading your book and I was thinking about how, um, your book really that this blood pages that just came out recently, um, that's sort of the same structure as I try to do with rattle every issue, uh, where you turn the page and you don't know if you're going to get something funny or yeah. something really uh, moving and touching or something like just catastrophically, you know, violent yeah. or who knows what you're going to get. And um, it's a surprise every mm. time. And there's just such a variation from page to page. Um, how do you approach writing poems that way where you don't like, do you know where you're going to go or how, do, how does that work? How do you get such variation from poem to poem? Yeah. Um, that's really an interesting question because it, I, I struggle with that because, you know, I, I think there's almost a, there's an there's this sort of cliche about discovering your voice and finding who it is you sound like and then sounding like this person for your career. And it's always made me a little uncomfortable that um, 
that there might be a kind of expectation that I like the way those five poems sounded, so this one will sound like that, and the next five will. And, and I have, um, I like the idea uh, of ambushing the reader. You know, the reader has certain expectations. I want to thwart those expectations. And um, I'm, I'm drawn to poems that are up to a little bit of mischief, you know, that are going to play around with convention, with expectation. Um, the poem that I want to write, the poem that I, I feel best about is the poem that manages to be funny and serious at the same time. Um, and, you know, uh, life is funny and life is serious and why not put all that into your work? I started out, I think, like, like most young poets, um, influenced by figures like Yeats and Eliot and I was sort of full of high sentence and everything was very serious and dark. And um, I, it was, I was well into my 40s before uh, actually one of the things that really helped me, I don't know if you have a particular book that sort of opened a window for you. My, the first book for me like that was when I was in college, uh, um, Coney Island of the Mind, Ferlinghetti. But in my 40s, somebody gave me uh, Tony Hoagland's uh, Donkey Gospel. And I don't know if, you've, uh, if you know, this, that poem just, uh, that book manages that trick of seriousness and humor at the same time. And I thought, I can do this. And uh, I sort of gave my permission, myself permission to be less serious as a writer. And, uh, you know, that funny poems, serious poems can be more serious for being funny. Funny poems can be funnier for being more serious. And I don't, when I sit down to begin writing, I don't know where it's going. Um, you probably agree that the best poems are the ones that surprise you. And uh, I, I just sort of, you know, give the poem its, its lead and have it go wherever it chooses. And ideally... I will be surprised and pleased. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I love Donkey Gospel. And, um, and Tony is one of the poets that I thought, you know, I was reading this book that it reminded me of Tony Gloger's. Like, it's like we still have yeah. that lineage. That was one of the thoughts that came to mind as I was reading it. Um, do you want to read maybe two poems? Yeah. And I, and I um, forgot to say, uh, let me know the page number so I can flip to it really quick. Okay, sure. Um, let me read a poem called, uh, this is a poem called Push. It's on page 24 of the book. And, uh, you know, anyone, anyone watching the show who's had kids knows that uh, if you have had the experience of watching your child actually be born, you know that there's it's probably the most extraordinary experience in your life. Nothing, nothing can prepare a man for walking into that room and seeing the child born. Um, and so this is about that experience. Um, I'm sort of like the world's oldest, fairly new dad. And this, this poem happened, this happened just a few years ago. This is about the birth of Alex, who is now three. Um, and so you're standing there in the delivery, delivery room and you're thinking, this is the most incredible thing that can happen on the planet. You think that, 
But there are other people in that room who may not think this is like that incredible. So this poem is sort of uh, about that experience and what happened as I watched Alex getting born. It's called Push. I'm trying to look as if I'm suffering. I have this anguished expression on my face, but it's wasted since I'm wearing a surgical mask. And anyway, the focus here is really on my wife, and the doctor is right there between her legs, and he's shouting, push! And my wife is doing this astounding thing. She's pushing yet another human being into the world, a world that so far seems to be pushing back. And the baby's heartbeat is down to 90, so the doc says, well, I think maybe one more try, then we do the cesarean. So things in the room really are a bit tense. It's definitely a moment that demands a lot of attention. And my wife is gathering whatever shreds of strength remain in the shaking, exhausted sleeve of flesh. Her body has become the blood and sweat and fluids everywhere. And this is it. When I hear the attending nurse standing just behind me saying to this guy in scrubs standing next to her, I think he's the anesthesiologist's assistant, well, just because Karen says she has a boyfriend doesn't necessarily mean she won't go out with you. And the guy says, his voice rising because my wife really is screaming quite loudly at this point, yeah, okay, I guess I should give it a try. I mean, what's the worst that can happen other than getting shot down and looking like a total fool? And the nurse says, as the doctor is shouting, push! Yeah, but hasn't it been like a long dry spell for you? Aren't you getting a little desperate here? And the guy laughs, and my wife screams again, and the doctor says, yes! And into the world comes the bloody head followed by the naked, lovely, bloody little boy, insanely ill-prepared for any of this. And I guess the guy actually is going to ask Karen out. And I say, go for it. <laughs> that was Push from uh, Blood Pages. Um, a great example of uh, the combination of humor and seriousness there. <laughs> um, and here's a poem... Uh, <clears throat> The center of our lives in the summer is probably uh, the local public pool, just a couple of blocks down the road. And so here's something that happened um, <clears throat> at the public pool. And it, it has to do with, you know, you, you, you spend your life, um, in a way, con constructing a persona, working hard, trying to succeed, trying to do well. And you feel that, um, you know, you, you've ideally that you've achieved something, you've accomplished something and, and that, um, you know, you're somebody and you've got this fragile thing called ego and you've built it up, but it is so fragile, so delicate, this sense of who you are, this sense of personhood. And that's what this poem about is about. It's called horseplay. It's on page 29. I'm floating in the public pool an older guy who has achieved much, including a mortgage, two children, and health insurance, including dental. I have a Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express, and my car is large. I have traveled to Finland 
In addition, I once met Toni Morrison at a book signing and made some remarks she found extremely interesting. And last month, I was the subject of a local news story called Recyclers, Neighbors Who Care. In short, I am not someone you would take lightly. But when I begin to playfully splash my wife, the teenage lifeguard raises her megaphone and calls down from her throne, no horseplay in the pool. And suddenly, I am 12 again, a pale worm at the feet of a blonde and suntan goddess. And I just wish my mom would come pick me up. <laughs> I mean, isn't that how it is, though? I mean, that really happened. And immediately, I just felt, you know, all of my power gone. And you're totally at the control of this teenage lifeguard. But... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminded me of, um, we interviewed Marvin Bell for uh, issue number 29. And um, he had this whole long riff about how um, growing old, you don't feel like you're actually older and grown up like you never do. You just feel like people look at you as if you're older, but you're still the same little boy inside. Yeah. And, and I sort of, I, you know, I really relate to that as, uh, as I grow up too. Um, and you know, you know, con connected to that, um, all of us teachers right now, you're not, you're not doing this, but all of us teachers who are staying home, we are teaching on, on Zoom. And if you have never done Zoom, folks, um, let's say you have uh, 10 students, a dozen students, they're all lined up on the screen in front of you, all their faces, and yours is right in the middle. It looks a little bit like the old Hollywood Squares board game. And if one of the weird things about being a teacher, every year, a year goes by, and your students are still 21. Your students are always 21, year after year. So you start thinking, I must look like that too. I'm in a room with 21-year-old people, and I see them. I don't see me. So one of the disturbing aspects of Zoom is I look at this screen, 21, 20, 21, 20, 21, 21. There's an old guy in his 60s. Oh, my God, that's me. <laughs> and there's no, no hiding from it. You know, it's frightening. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe that's a good segue into, into teaching poetry. Um, how do you go about teaching poetry? What do you, um, what's your main advice that you give to students as a, as a really successful poet yourself? Um, how do you help make them successful too? Well, you, um, the students who come into the class really excited about writing poetry and feeling that they can, in a way that, you know, the battle is won with them. But if it's students who are kind of experimenting with the idea of a writing class, and they come in, as so often happens, saying, um, I'm not creative, I'm not poetic. Um, I always say to them, when, when, when you were a little kid, you crawled around on the grass and you would pick up a dandelion and look at it with amazement, and you would look up at an airplane flying overhead with amazement. When did you stop being a poet? You know, that's, that's still in you. It's still there. And um, I usually begin in a class like that by asking him to, to find an object. Um, we go outside and say, find a simple commonplace object and write an ode about it. Just tell me everything you love about this fire hydrant. Yes, and you can talk about dogs peeing on it. And um, almost invariably, uh, when 
you know, the, we type up the poems and the students read them back. They, they are delighted. They're delighted by their own powers of observation that they didn't realize that they had. And they're also pleased by hearing um, the English language somehow shaped through their own, through their own voices. Um, and really what I do is try to show them a lot of good poems, a lot of good stuff. You know, start out with showing them some Neruda, um, uh, poems that are immediately going to engage them. Billy Collins, Tony Hoagland, um, and, um, you know, they're off and running. A thing that I've started doing in our, our technical age um, is uh, asking students to record their poems onto their phones and send me a recording of them performing the poem. And if, if they'd like, they can put music in the background. And as soon as you start um, giving the poem that sort of performative aspect, they really start getting into it. And, you know, early in the term, they're reading their poems, you know, very, they're kind of reading like, I failed to move the lawn again while I was considering this, you know, it's a blah. And like after a few weeks of hearing the poems, they start hearing the music in their own language and slowing it down, playing it up. So, but I have to say, you know, um, wow, what a cool job to be a poet and get to sit down in a classroom and talk about poetry is a dream. Yeah, I, I love what you said about um, when did you not be, you know, when did you stop becoming a poet? Because um, we do the yeah. we do the young poets anthology every year, and that's why we do it because kids are natural poets. And there's that E.E. Uh, e. Cummings line which we love, uh, "And down they forgot as up they grew," and that's, and that's right. exactly how it works with poetry. We have this this freedom to express ourselves through language when it's when it's fresh, and then we kind of forget as we become more self conscious. Um, yeah, that's true. And and I think college is a really tough time as far. I mean, it certainly was for me as far as the whole uh, am I cool enough kind of thing. In the summers, I often teach at a at a writer's workshop, a young writer's workshop in Oklahoma. And it's for it's for gifted, uh, talented high school kids from the country. Almost all of these kids come from ranches, you know, way, way out in the middle of nowhere. And they audition to be a part of this program. And um, uh, they're, they're studying dance, photography, painting. Each one of them chooses a discipline. And I end up with 15 young poets who are 14, 15, 16 years old. And they are completely uninhibited. And the, the college kids, you know, you're trying to pull this out of them. And I'll never forget the first day, the, the college kids just won't say anything unless, you know, you just threaten them. The first day I taught at this writer's workshop in Oklahoma, I had my 15 students there and I read some short poem to them. And I said, uh, so how did you like this poem? And all 15 of them like this, their hands are up. And it's like, you know, baby birds in a nest. I mean, it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> so... Uh, it's, you know, great, great fun. Um, I'll tell you one quick anecdote that has nothing to do with anything about this class. I taught it last year and we did a little segment on form. And again, all these kids are from ranches. They're all from the country, ranches and farms. That's where they grew up. And I read a favorite poem of mine by Philip Larkin. I don't have it with me here, but it's called Wires. It's only eight lines long. 
And the poem is about how in the, you know, out in the West, you know, Larkin is English. He never went to the U.S., but he, I guess he knew about these cattle from movies. He talked about how young steers are, when, when young steers come to electric fences wanting to stray farther, they bump into these fences and get a terrible shock and young steers become old cattle from that day. And it's a, it's a beautiful poem. And it's, it, formally, it's very intricate. It's a brilliant uh, work of rhyming genius. And I read the poem to them, waiting for them to say, oh my God. And instead, I get this kind of look of skepticism on the faces of the, and there's this one girl in the front row, you know, like 15 years old, and I said, so, Marsha, what, you didn't like the poem? And she said, well, I guess I like the poem, but I'll tell you what, I never did see a cow that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and they went on to tell me that the cows never bump into these fences. Hmm. They just don't do it. It's, it's something only a British poet who'd never been, seen a cow would write. And I thought, <laughs> I wish Philip Larkin had been, I ain't never seen a cow that dumb was one of the great lines. It, that's heard. really funny. Yeah. Do you, that brings up a good question, though, which I always wonder about is how important accuracy is within a poem. Because I am, um, we actually, we have a big split within Rattle itself. Because Alan, who our founding editor, Alan Fox, yeah. is very much like it has to be exactly right. It can't be fake. You know, it can't be false. If there's a false note, it yeah. ruins it for me. And I'm like, and my opinion is that we create this universe, which is not necessarily our universe. And um, it's the poet's imagination. And who the hell cares what's actually true or not? And, uh, and we yeah. have a big split where we always, that's one of our main arguments. Where do you fall on that line and, and why? That's a, that's a good one, um, because uh, I'm, I'm much closer to the tell me something that really happened. I mean, every now and then I will forget in an introductory poetry writing workshop, I, I'll forget to tell them just what you and I are talking about. I, I, I'll forget to tell them my thing, which is I want the, 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 the thing you're writing about to basically be true. OK, I don't want you to make it up. And now and then I'll forget to do this. And I, you know, one, one term a kid wrote this incredible poem about his, um, his father's death of cancer. And the last time they met at the, at the hospital bed and, you know, everybody was like, Oh my God, this is fantastic. And I said, you know, uh, Mike, that's just a, a beautiful poem. And I, I should also say to you, I'm really sorry about your dad. And he said, Oh, my dad's fine. I just made that up. <laughs> and I said, you made it up. And, and I was, I was kind of outraged and I thought, why couldn't he make it up? It's a hell of a good poem. But I said, Mike, I mean, I, I don't, there's, there's no rule about this, but in my poetic world, you can't just make it up. You can change little details like in pancake dilemma, it doesn't have to be Paw Patrol. <laughs> it could be another kid's show. But I'm, I'm not going to write Pancake Dilemma and then say, oh, but I don't, I'm not married and I don't have kids. To me, it's got to be, it, it's, for me, the poet's job is to find the actual thing and restore it to poetry. Re, you know, re recover its unfamiliarity. Find the magic in it. Um, so, I mean, how much making up would you allow in a poem 
that you're writing. Well, I, I feel like there's a difference between, uh, I would make a distinction between truth and facts. And, uh, okay. and, and truth is a, it are facts that are iterative across time and space or something like that. Like truths are things yeah. that are, that are true now, but also true later and true in the past. And, and what we're really searching for is truth. Whereas facts are sort of just stuck in the, the happenstance of what happened to happen. And like, who cares what the facts are? as long as you get to the truth. I think that that's how I would yeah. characterize the difference. I think that there's a, you know, like, like we don't want, I've always said this, that um, when I'm reading submissions, all I'm doing is sitting, you know, reading through people and looking for the scent of honesty or something or the, or the, yeah. the resonance or the hum of honesty. Um, but, but honesty doesn't have to I, be I factually accurate though, you know? Um, no, I, I, I understand. So. And I was, it's funny you would say that because I'm, I'm teaching a grad class here at John Carroll in modern poetry, contemporary poetry, and we're reading a book a week like you are. And the book we read last week was by a, a terrific poet whose work I really love, um, the British current British poet laureate, Simon Armitage. And it's a book called The Shout. And what I find remarkable about the book, you, you were talking to me about, you know, some of your poems are serious, some funny, some both. What I love about this book, The Shout, is almost every poem in it is a kind of um, persona poem. He's writing in the voice of a hitchhiker, pick somebody who gets picked up and then kills the driver. You know, he's, he's writing in the voice of uh, an astronaut who... Um, is looking down at his country from space. Uh, um, again and again, he just assumes a different voice. And that allows you, that gets it this truth you're speaking of. He can put his own persona aside and embody a certain kind of truth by acting like another person. And I thought, yeah, that's really cool. You feel, you come to the end of that book and you realize my own expectations of myself as a poet feel so limited after this. I mean, why do I have to be me in every poem? Might not be anybody, you know? Yeah, but it's weird that like if you had said like like your poems feel like they're you. And if you told us right now that the poems were just made up, we would definitely be disappointed. Yeah. So there's this weird yeah. contrast. Like I want it desperately to actually be you. At the same time it's like yeah. I know I shouldn't care. You know, so it's I think a, there's I think, you know, Tim, I think what happens with that is um with older, I think it's something we, we do to older writers. I mean, I've been around for a long time and I have constructed this persona who is pretty much me, maybe a bit exaggerated, but he's usually the foil in the poems. He's the guy who doesn't get the girl. Um, uh, there's a lot of self mockery involved, but that younger poets, haven't had a chance to construct a persona yet. You know, they're, they're not doing that. And I'm not even saying that they should, but for me, it's become kind of a shtick. I mean, it's, it's, this is George encountering this situation and I, I know how he will do that. So I don't know if in the long run that becomes a limitation, but it's something uh, that's sort of evolved on its own. Do you do you uh, have a do you have a desire to break out of that? Is that something that you would like to do? Persona poems or something like that? I'd like to do more of that. And now and then I will do. I mean, I I am. This will surprise some people, but I am capable of writing poems that are just completely serious. And uh, it to me, it's crucial that I do that. That in in a way, I mean, you have to establish the 
the serious bedrock upon which to to dance playfully. I mean, I want people to know I'm not a comedian. I'm I'm very serious, but I'm finding a way of of uh, of being funny. But I'll read I'll read a a serious poem. Yeah, please do. Although that's probably you know the worst thing that you can do when you're introducing someone's poetry is to say here's a really funny poet and he's going to read a funny poem. I mean, that's just murder. <laughs> so I just did it to myself. But this is a poem. Uh, my dad, uh, a subject that I've gone to often is uh, my father's alcoholism. Um, and it, it destroyed his life. He, he died of it. And I say somewhat jokingly um, at uh, workshops and so forth, if you want your kid to become a poet, the best thing you can do is become an alcoholic because that's how they, one way they have of coping with it. The poem is called The Forge. It's on page 13. I remember watching my father stop halfway up the driveway because my tricycle was blocking the way to the garage and how he solved the problem by picking up the tricycle by the handlebars and smashing it through the windshield of our brand new family station wagon. His face red with scotch, his black tie and jacket flapping with effort, the tricycle making its way a little farther with each blow into the roomy interior of the latest model. As the safety glass relented, the tricycle and the windshield, both praiseworthy for their toughness the struggle between them somehow making perfect sense in midday on our quiet suburban street, the windshield, the anvil, the trike, the hammer, the marriage, the forge, and failure glowing in the heat, beaten and tempered, slowly taking shape. That was the forge from blood pages. The forge. Yeah. I'm glad you read that one. That was the one, um, I was actually thinking of when you know, reading the book, uh, just talking about the the surprise that from one poem to another. You're going through this string of like light, funny poems, and all of a sudden that poem just hits you like a hammer, yeah. um, coming out of nowhere. And and yeah. this is a book I related to a lot personally because um, you know I have younger children. My father was an alcoholic too, and um, and and that poem really yeah. it, it sort of comes out of nowhere like a sucker punch or something, and um, yeah. it really worked well. I think I think you have to do that. Yeah, well, thank you. I, you have to do that, if, if only to vary things. You know, you, you've got to vary the tone. So, um, yeah. So, uh, keep keeping that mix going um, keeps the energy flowing. Yeah, do you want to read another one to, uh, to keep the mix going? Yeah, I'll keep the mix going. How about, uh, okay, here's... Um, Here's a poem about uh, a trip my wife and I uh, and kids took to Rome a couple of summers ago. And <clears throat> we did it the worst possible way. We were, we were in Europe and we decided, let's go to Rome. And it was July. It was unbelievably hot. It was jammed with tourists. It was just every, you know, rookie mistake you could make in, in visiting Rome. But, but we did it. And every day we would see some famous tourist thing. And our, our energy was lagging, okay? Uh, the, poem, the poem is called, Really 
eternal city on page 36. After we'd walked for at least an hour, heading toward the Vatican on a broiling August day, I began thinking about how long the tour we'd signed up for was going to be and how many sacred things would be on view and how much complicated information the guide would tell us about the ancient paintings and Roman numerals and relics and tombs and holy knuckle bones. I knew it would all kind of just melt together and congeal into one big lumpen mass of guilt and suffering and miracles and gloomy old men in sandals. And as I was thinking this, we were passing through a shady little square where a couple of bare-breasted marble nymphs were playing in the fountain, and there were no tour guides anywhere. There was no suffering or crucifixions, nor was there even one important name or date I would have to try to remember. And the cheap red wine at the sidewalk Ristorante where we ended up spending the afternoon instead of going to the Vatican, was wonderful, even miraculous, as was the spaghetti bolognese. And I want to say that last line, as was the spaghetti bolognese. For novice writers out there, if you're struggling with your poem, trying to figure out how to finish your poem, that line will work with any poem, <laughs> as was the spaghetti. Milton's Paradise Lost put that there um it's just a universal fix-all that's a good idea yeah i'll have to, I'll have to try that um, I, I wrote a little haiku for a prompt i'll put that at the end um, put, put that in there yeah. um i really want to get to some posts or questions from the audience i have to god i should there's so many um let me see um i haven't been reading them i haven't been keeping up but one of them i saw earlier um jessica dawson mentioned somewhere um let me find it um, she says, I really enjoyed George's reading voice. I wish more people sounded like this when they read poetry, myself included. And, you know, I agree. <laughs> so, and, and you're the host of a radio show, Wordplay. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about how you read and present poems and, um, mm. and how you go about doing it? Maybe just for me personally, because I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, I would like to have a great reading voice for the radio. Um, and I'm sure everybody else would like to have a great reading voice for poetry. So how do you, is it just natural? Um, or is it something that you like worked on? Is there any advice you have? No, it's a, it's a computer app that, uh, <laughs> my voice, my real voice is very high and squeaky. Uh, no, um, I don't know. I just ended up with, with this voice, although I am, because I do a radio show, I'm pretty conscious of it. I mean, all of us know what it was like the first time you heard your voice recorded and you went, Oh God, that's not really me. So I, I think about it a lot. Um, but I, I do have a couple of, uh, I mean, the things I think, uh, students, novice poets get wrong most often is, um, reading too fast. You know, you, you, you get excited about the poem and you just start tripping over the words. And I think, you know, the faster you read, the less, people are going to are going to listen um so i think it's really important to slow it down more more than you think you should and give each word a, a, a chance to make its little brief appearance uh, on the stage I, I i do this radio show wordplay i mean it's uh google it it's uh, it's on wjcu 
radio at John Carroll. And I do it with uh, a co-host named John Donahue. I mentioned it. I think I'm a pretty good reader of poems, I'll, I'll admit, uh, because I've had a lot of practice. But John is my favorite reader of poems. He comes from New York, from grew up in Queens, so he kept a little bit of that New York accent, which somehow adds, uh, it's hard to explain, like a, a further lens of Americanness to his readings. But John talks about the ability to, to take a poem, his own or someone else's, and the, the key is to somehow embody the poem within yourself, make it your own. Um, he does something <clears throat> that I think is almost impossible. You know, he can, he can read, he has read on our show, Robert Frost stopping by woods on a snowy evening. And he, I've never heard anyone read it without it sounding a bit like a nursery rhyme whose woods these are, I think I know, he lives within the village. <laughs> John finds a way of embodying that poem and overcoming the, the stresses, and in a way recovering the poem from being merely repetitively melodic. You know what I mean? It, so it, it's hard to explain, but he brings the poem into himself and somehow speaks it in his voice. And if you can manage that secret of knowing how you sound and putting your poem into your own speech patterns, the readings start coming alive. But it takes a lot of practice. It really does. And I, yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at it. But um, I think of people who, who, uh, whose poems take on a fully different dimension because of the way they read them. That's uh, have you heard of, surely you've heard of Billy Collins reading. And Billy Collins manages a voice that is so multi-leveled. It's, it's like the guy is saying to you, I want you to take this seriously. I know we're not taking it seriously, but perhaps we are taking it seriously. But you know what I mean? It's you're never quite sure. And the reader is kind of balanced on that point between, does he really mean this? No, he doesn't mean this. Actually, he does mean this. Um, so it, it's a complicated thing. But there, I think the, the novice reader uh, removes his or her personality and just reads the words on the page. If you, if you are Bob, read the poem as Bob would speak the poem. And that's the trick. Yeah. I don't know if that helps. If it does help you, please... Send me a check for a hundred dollars. All right. Well, just give out your address, and, and that was that was good advice. I think both the, the two pieces there, because I noticed as you were reading after um, Jessica Dawson said that, I was kind of listening to what you do, and and the main thing that stood out was how long you let silence like live, kind of yeah between like if there's a period, yeah. you let the period live. And um, and I was actually thinking about that just last night because my son, who's uh, five, is just starting to read. Um, a lot and he does not stop for periods <laughs> so no. it's just this string yeah. and i'm like just rush you know, slow down dude but you really emphasize you that yeah. yeah yeah if you if you have a pause in the poem i mean more than more than a second first of all the audience their their initial reaction is kind of alarm you know mm -hmm. is he having a seizure of some kind what something has gone wrong and so everyone kind of perks up and then the poem continues. Uh, but yeah, the silence can speak more eloquently 
than the words if you put them in the right places. Yeah, yeah, that was good advice. And then, and then reading in your own voice is, is good advice too. Um, Vicky Miko asked a question. Um, she says, I seem to have a problem with all the different forms and where to break lines, punctuation, etc. Do you have any tips about that? And, and your poems are one, you're, you know, you're writing in, in a free verse. Um, they're very natural yeah. and casual. How much do you pay attention to line breaks and, and those kind of details, the punctuation, like when to use a dash yeah. versus a, a semicolon versus a period? Um, oh, my God. Well, I can, you know, uh, I can sit there uh, <clears throat> worrying about this for hours. And I, I bet anything, you've done the same thing, any poet, you know, you finally realize, yeah, that needs a dash. You finally get that. Then you read it the next day and you say, no, 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 comma. Then you read it the next day. How about, no, maybe just a period. <laughs> um, you could really start obsessing about this stuff. But uh, I watched your... Uh, your rattle cast with uh, Charles Harper Webb the other day. He, he mentioned, uh, you know, the famous Yeats line about uh, we can, we poets can spend the whole day working on a line of poetry, but it, um, unless it seems like the work of an instant, all our labor is in vain. I want my poems to sound like more like more or less like everyday speech, more or less, but I go over them again and again and again to kind of, idealize that quality to make it, I mean, maybe I would think of my poems as sounding real, but a kind of hyper reality, an idealized version of plain speech. And to, to get that right, to get it where I want it means, yeah, a careful attention to line breaks, a careful attention to uh, where, where to pause, where to speed up, where you might want to put, um, you know, a series of, like that poem, uh, I'll, I'll just give you an example of it. Uh, I read to you that poem about the baby being born, Push. So that poem is, it's a funny poem with a kind of bedrock of seriousness, but it rushes along. It's speeding along. Things are happening quickly. I mean, everything's, a child is being born in this room and he's being pulled out of his mother's womb but then I want to slow it down. So in the last lines of the poem, when I say, my wife screams again and the doctor says, yes, and into the world comes the bloody head followed by the naked, lovely, bloody, little. I'm just having all those I ams, blum, blum, blum. And it slows the whole thing down and ooh, that's what I want. And it's, it's a matter of, you know, listening to the rhythm, listening to the timing and thinking, naked, lovely, bloody, little boy. And that, all that just acts like a, a, a break to the whole poem, slows you down. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really attentive and aware of those things. And I, as far as line breaks go, I, I do want the line break that gives you the maximum energy at the end of that line. I mean, I'm... You can look at my poems, and you will you will never see any line in in the, uh, any poem I've written in the last twenty years that ends with the word the or of or and. No, it's always going to be a strong word or phrase like dog vomit or something. So, uh, yeah, to me those things are crucially important, and yet I look at Sharon Olds, wonderful poet. 
uh, Pulitzer Prize winning poet. And she is, is quite happy to end, you know, of the, but that's, that's, she wants a quality of ragged, casual, the appearance of not being art that I just don't do. So that's interesting. Uh, you point out this, um, uh, the, that line, the, the naked, lovely, bloody little boy. And that reminds me of, um, I mentioned uh, I, my first poetry professor ever was James Longenbach. And he used to talk about in the station at the Metro and the way that yeah. the petals on the wet black bow move forward in your mouth as you're pronouncing the syllable. So it's, eh, eh, ooh, you know, oh, that's and in yeah. your poem, this, this line does that too. The, the naked in the back of the road, naked, lovely, bloody little boy. It moves forward as it's going slowly. Um, yeah, that's good. Is, is that, I never thought of that. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to ask. Is that conscious at all? Because I don't think it is. I think we just understand music, the kind of music that poetry does, and then we just do it, you know? Yeah, you, it, it, it's conscious. It, it, it's subconscious. It's a, it's a natural sense of rhythm. You know, you've been speaking the language your whole life. But it never occurred to me that starting back here, slowly moving forward to the front. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and that's the way that highlights each syllable in the way that you were doing, too. Like, you just, without realizing you were doing it, just having read and, and being a master of speech, which is, the cool thing about poetry is that we're all already, like, master guitarists, like, shredding every day, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's just the beauty of it, that we already know how to talk. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know how this sentence is going to end. Is it starting to come out of my mouth? And then it does, miraculously. And and that's just the magic of language and speech. Um, one of the questions... And we've all got it, and we've all got it in different ways. I mean, we all have our own take on that language. And that, that too, is cool. Mm -hmm. but yeah, one, another question? Yeah, somebody else earlier asked, just to just feed up on that, because you sort of mentioned it a little bit, but, but somebody asked... I can't find it, but they asked if you do a lot of revision for your poems. Do you, do you, are you a kind of poet who tinkers and changes things and do poems yeah. take a long, a lot of iterations to finish or, or is it sort of a one and done kind of thing? I've never done, uh, I don't think I've ever done a one and done. That's, that's never happened. I would say, I don't, you know, I don't have the data here, the statistics, the numbers of revisions, uh, average poet goes through. But if, if there were such a number, I'd say I'm probably average. I'll, I'll write out a draft of a poem, by the way, in a notebook with a, with a fountain pen and, um, I'll write out the draft and then I'll, I'll just sit on it for a few days and then I'll type it up onto the computer. And then, you know, you, you start, if you see something there, if you see a spark of life and you think, ah, this is, this, this could be pretty good. I'll probably tinker with it for, you know, um, at least a couple of months, but I, I do not mean all day, every day. I mean, I'll, I'll come to it, work on it for 20 minutes, leave it alone, come back to it, approach it warily and give it enough time that you're seeing it with kind of fresh eyes. I've, I've been to many readings where uh, I'm sure you've heard this where a poet will say, this is a poem I worked on for seven years. And I think, come on, are you really? I mean, for me, if it, if the poem doesn't cooperate with me fairly quickly, um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put it away in that, you know, poems that never saw the light of day. I know pretty soon after I write the poem where, whether it's going to be any good or not, whether I'm going to stay with it, almost always what the 
uh, almost always what the rough drafts, the successful rough drafts that I write have in common is they surprise me. I didn't see this coming and something happened near the end and wow, how did that happen? Where did that come from? Those are the poems that are, are going to work and that I, I go back to with great interest. And there are plenty of poems that, you know, you revise them and you revise them and they will just lie there deader than a do doornail. And finally, you just put them aside. The coolest thing in revision, I think, is when you write, let's say you write a poem of uh, eight, six stanzas, eight stanzas. And you read it over and over again, and you think all the words are right, everything seems right, but the poem just seems kind of cloddish and leaden. And then you realize, wow, if I dropped the first stanza and the last stanza, boom, it just explodes. And they, all they were doing, I had, to, I had to write my way into the poem, I had to write my way out of it, but if I get rid of that last stanza, they're just electric sparks are flying all over the place and you didn't have to do any work. You just go X, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's like that old. Yeah. yeah it's funny. It's funny you say that. Cause that those are the two, the only two edits we really ever do at rattle. Occasionally there's a word that's like wrong or something, but, but the only thing we'll do is we'll say, um, cut out that last stanza and we'll publish it. Or we'll say, cut out that first stanza and we'll publish it. <laughs> and that's, um, that's kind of the only yeah. thing as an editor, you know, you, you pick from thousands and thousands of poems, but, but there's that, that there are two competing drives people have to, to explain how they're getting into, or, you know, they haven't gotten exactly. into it yet. You know, they're trying to figure yeah. out what they're going to write about. So they have this sort of spinning their wheels moment at first, mm -hmm. or they don't trust that they told the story. And so they keep explaining it a little bit at the end. And if you cut out both yeah. of those, you just have the actual poem, and, and that's the, the only exactly. edit we make. Yeah. And, of course, you, you get the impulse why, why you would do this in the draft. Um, but then, yeah, the sheer pleasure of getting rid of jettisoning those lines that aren't doing anything is, is really, that's really the fun part. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I must say, can I say, to Oh, yeah, go ahead. The idea that, the idea that you do this at Rattle. That, that you guys look at poems and actually make suggestions. I think that's amazing because hardly anybody does that anymore. Is that true? I, I always feel like we don't do enough of that. Like there, there are poems oh, that I could like, I feel like this is really cool. And if I messed with it enough, I could get it to be really cool. Uh, but I just I don't the, have time. Yeah. So I'll say, I like this, but it still needs work. And that's where I leave it. And if they submit it again, maybe we'll publish it, which happens sometimes. But usually... Um, right. Usually we don't edit much because we just have, you know, a thousand, like five hundred poems a day coming in. And I so, know. Yeah. You guys, you guys provide the human touch, um, which which is much appreciated. Um, I just want to say, what a great magazine Rattle is, and it's become a real mainstay in the American poetry scene because of that in, in energy and devotion. I mean, back in the starting back in the eighties, I, I started keeping files of rejection letters, if, if they were letters, and acceptance letters. And back in those days, it was not uncommon for a rejection letter to, to have a bunch of tips. We're not taking this poem for these reasons. And even an acceptance letter describing why they took it. We like this poem. Here's why. Um, maybe because of the sheer numbers mm -hmm. involved today. Nobody has time to do that. But I look at those old letters with amazement. You know? 
Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's just the, uh, you know, we talk sometimes about the professionalization of poetry, all the MFA programs. There's just been this huge volume. Even in the 15 years since I've been here, the difference between having maybe five or 8,000 submissions a year versus 60,000 is, you know, it's really, it's a huge difference. It changes everything. Um, But I... I do try. I try to make a point to say something about an acceptance, which I don't. Sometimes I just don't have time and don't. <laughs> but I try to say that. And then if poems come close, I try to say, like, we like this poem in particular. Um, yeah. and, and I don't really say much more than that. But I say, like, this is the one out of the four that, that we were really considering and hope you send again or something. Um, but in the past, you know, back in the, in the 5,000 poems a year day, I used to write notes on almost every submission. So it's a much different, it's just, yeah. you know, and it's not my, um, it's not for lack of wanting to be different. It's just that, that there's only so many hours in the day. Um, and, um, I, I wanted to ask one more question before we, and we'll finish off with like maybe two poems. Uh, but I love it when there's questions that I have no idea what they're referring to. And Mary Torgrosa <laughs> Um, uh, who, uh, he, she was on the open mic on, on Sunday actually, but she says, do you have a poem about the yellow door? What is the, I have no idea what she's talking about. The yellow door. Well, you have a poem about the yellow door. Uh, oh, the yellow door that, in the yeah. background. I see your kitchen has a yellow oh, door. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah. You can see it and I can. Yeah. There you go. Well, you should, I, if you I, don't. I, I, I don't have a poem about that. I, I can tell you that the door, um, until last year was blue. Hmm. Uh, and my wife and I had a big talk about uh, whether we should paint the door yellow. And, and I wanted to paint the door yellow. And so I kind of, one of the rare moments when I won out in our kitchen uh, overhaul. So I don't have a poem about that, but I, I feel like I should start writing. One. I think you should. That door, yeah, that door leads down to the basement. But the basement is also my music listening room. Hmm. And I've got, you know, I've got a great music system and millions of records and CDs that before we had kids was in the living room. And uh, I had this beautiful turntable with, you know, the, the cartridges, the needles on these things cost like 300 bucks. And I came home from school one day and I wanted to listen to some some music and I move the tone arm over above the record and saw that the cartridge wasn't there. This was after we had my child, two years old at that time. And we found the cartridge up in his bedroom with the little broken wires hanging out of it. So (laughs) that's why everything went downstairs. So that yellow door is the portal to privacy and music. I think think the poem's half written on it already. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, do you listen to music uh, as you write and, and what kind of music do you listen to just since you brought that up well I don't listen to music as I write um, I'll say something about that in a sec but uh, I grew up in a very musical household my, my dad was trained was a trained singer trained in opera and leader and oratorio so I grew up in this classical music background but then like just about everybody I, I fell in love with all kinds of music, but late in life, like like in my early 60s, I finally started listening to jazz. Um, you know, like jazz from the, the 50s and 60s and Miles Davis, John Coltrane. It just kind of happened to me. So that's sort of where I am now. I'm in, I'm in my jazz phase. Yeah. And uh, I live in Cleveland. And about an hour and a half from Cleveland, south, is Pittsburgh. 
And in Pittsburgh, there is a legendary used record store. It's called Jerry's. And he's got like a million and a half old LPs, all very clean. They all cost $3. And so every few months I go down there and raid them for their jazz. I don't listen to music while I write because when I listen to music, I'm actually listening to the music. It's too distracting. But I do like... At the same time, I can't sit in a quiet room. It makes me too anxious. Uh, it makes me it makes me feel that I have no option except to work, which is terrifying. So what I like doing is going to a local cafe. There's a cafe a block away from here, and I go there every morning before the coronavirus. And I work in a cafe. I like that. I like the buzz of human activity and conversation around me. And every now and then, just overhearing stuff, you pick up ideas. So you will notice a lot of my poems happen in cafes, maybe too many. I did, I did notice that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to, uh, let's see, maybe two poems or, or one longer one, if you want to finish it out that way? Um, yeah, let's let's see. Uh, I, I could read a poem about, um, I'll read it, I'll read a poem about my son, Michael. Um, you know, one of the, the big dangers of being a poet and having kids is writing these poems that no one wants to hear about your kids, but I, I want to do one anyway. Um, this is a poem called Watering Flowers. The little boy is holding a watering can in the twilight an envoy of fireflies pulsing above the lawn, cicadas still growing strong this late in the season. The can so heavy he can barely lift it to the pots on the porch steps. He can't say his R's yet. They still come out like W's, although he does not know this. So when the old woman next door calls out and asks him what he's, what he's doing, watering flowers makes her smile. And the two young women passing on the sidewalk smile as well, something tightening back in their throats, because he hasn't quite entered the language yet. He's still living in that world before everything makes a kind of hard, no-nonsense sense you can't do anything about, which means they want to draw him to their bosoms, and even the houses on the old street lean over him protectively. They've sent so many other children out of their cool wooden rooms and into the world. And his father, standing beside him, trembles with wonder and a sense that nothing so beautiful was ever promised him, ever guaranteed. But here it is, holy and hovering, a delicate breath in the evening, everyone smiling, and about to vanish into night. Although, of course, the little boy doesn't understand, he's watching the soil darken with water and all the startled bugs moving around. That was Watering Flowers, the last poem in uh, George Bilshear's new book, Blood Pages. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, George. It was really a pleasure talking to you and, and getting to hear some of your poems uh, in your own voice. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us, and um, hope you have a good night. Jim, what a treat. Bye-bye. Okay, good night. So uh, 
That was George Bilgier, uh, his new book, which is out from Pit Press. Uh, once again, it's Blood Pages. Um, he didn't read the poem, Blood Pages, but um, you'll have to check out the book to see what that is all about. Uh, the book Blood Pages is from University of Pittsburgh Press. So you can find it at upress.pit.edu. Um, now, uh, if you're if you're new to the Rattlecast, if anybody there is, we probably have the same audience every time at this point. But we do a open mic uh, for a prompt poem every week. It's Megan's prompt. She makes the prompt. She writes a poem. She forces me to write a poem, and then anybody else who would like to write a poem too can feel free to do that. Um, I think I'm going to switch it up. We're we're allowing right now. We're allowing pre-recorded poems, but I'm going to make it just. I'm just going to read them. Uh, if you email them, after you write them to openmic at rattle.com, I'll read them. If you want to call in, there's a phone number, which I can put up on the screen. Uh, the phone number is uh, 818-850-7727, or you can send me a chat message over Skype at Rattle Poetry. So if you want to read the poem that you wrote for the prompt, uh, you can do that yourself. Um, or... You know, you can give me your phone number. I can call you at the end of the show like this, right around you know ten ten something Eastern time. Um, or I'll just read them. It'll make it much easier. I just want to sort of streamline this whole process. So send those to openmic at rattle.com if you do a prompt poem. Now this week's prompt um, was from the point of view of the oldest living tree, and uh, that was Megan's prompt for this week. Now my poem is a haiku or technically a haiga i guess because I, I took this picture this is a um bristlecone pine right above us on the ridge uh, this is overlooking sort of la if you look out in the distance you can kind of see la from where this is my own picture there's a cool little bench on the trail and uh, we're looking at this bristlecone pine and this is just a thought that i have every time we take that little it's called lightning ridge trail here in uh, the san gabriel mountains and uh, every time we take this trail we see that tree I sit in that bench, and this is the thought I have in the form of a haiku um, from the perspective of the tree. Uh, like tides, the empires rise and fall beneath me. Bristlecone pine. And since the haiku, I'll read it twice. Like tides, the empires rise and fall beneath me. Bristlecone pine. And uh, Megan's poem, which, as is always the case, is better than mine, because uh, she's a better poet than me. And it's also her prompt, so she has a head start. Uh, this is a word from the oldest living tree. When you watch a crow, your eyes define it. Its blackness, the shape of it. You might write it down. You might compare it to something, ink on blue paper. Maybe you tell your friend, look, a crow. And though both of you see it at the same time, one thinks of death and the other thinks of love. You're, if you're hungry... And you have good aim. You can shoot it down, skin it, gut it, fry it up. And poetry becomes primal, a scattering of bones. For me, it's different. I don't see the crow. I know it. The way you know that earth is below and heaven is above. Deep in the soil where death is everywhere and love is sleeping. I write the true and wordless story. Look, look a crow. As for hunger... I'll take whatever's left, the poem, the memory, the guts, the bones. So that was Megan's poem for this week's prompt. That was a word from the oldest living tree. And now um, 
we do have three pre-recorded poems. If you wrote a poem about uh, the prompt this week, The Oldest Living Tree, do send me a quick chat message or give me a call at, um, gosh, I can still not remember the number. It is 818-850-7727 or send me a Skype message at Rattle Poetry. Um, next up is Cindy Botha, who sent us a poem. And um, let me pull it up. Here we go. This is uh, Cindy Botha's poem, You Wouldn't Call Me a Tree. You Wouldn't Call Me a Tree by Cindy Botha. You wouldn't call me a tree unless you knew how I'm sustained, like an old crone, blind and bed-bound, fed broth from a gentle spoon, sung to in the shadow hours, a lullaby of rain and night birds, of moon-pale moths whose dust settles unseen on the stump of me, ancient as rock. But through roots I am nurtured in the earth's dark sharing, watched by those who feed on sun and shrug off storms. They wait with me, those who are still called trees, I bear too many rings to count, who would even try, in heartwood that held sweet sap through more centuries than I can remember. But those eyes of night, the stars, are still the same. At least, I think they are. That was Cindy Botha reading her poem, uh, You Wouldn't Call Me a Tree. And she sent a note, too. She said, this deviates a little from the prompt, but I am intrigued that some ancient trees are just stumps that are kept alive by root grafts from neighboring trees. One of the first stumps of this kind to be found is here in New Zealand, where some of our native kari trees are very old, including Tain Mahauta, the god of the forest at 2,500 years old. I have only uh, been reading and writing poetry for a few years, Having come to it very late in life, now is an inestimable joy I can't imagine living without. And she also says, Rattle is the first magazine I subscribe to. So thanks so much, Cindy Botha. Thanks for writing that poem and for sharing it with us. The you know We're really here. We're trying to get as many people participating as poetry in poetry as possible at all times. It's what we're always doing because uh, I think poetry is the portal to a better uh, relationship with life. That's one way you could say it. Um, and so the more people who write poems, the better, which is why we have a prompt at the end of every episode. Now, this next one is uh, by Brenda Kamarinsky from uh, Belurka, Maryland, or Massachusetts. Belurka, Mar- Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Okay, here we go. My name is Brenda Kamarinsky, and this is my poem for this week's prompt. Words from the Ancient White Pine in the Warren Manning State Forest. Here she comes again, that hiker who calls me old friend. She's going to hug me, I know. Well, at least try. My trunk is three people wide and still growing. My children surround me and my branches are breaking. It doesn't hurt, but I worry. A falling limb would hurt my hiker friend. I have seen it happen. I remember when I was here alone, and now this forest is thick. 
I can see the road from the top, and houses too. There were fields not that long ago, but my friend and I, we talk about tomorrow. Oh, thanks so much. That was Brenda Kamarinsky reading her poem, Words from the Ancient White Pine in the Warring Manning State Forest. And um, as is always the case, I just love, I love making people write poems. Like the idea that we did something that made a poem exist that didn't exist before um, is really fun to me. And uh, that's why I love the Ekphrastic Challenge and the Poet Response series that we do, because that way um, we're making more poems just by our existence, uh, by having venues for people to, to make poems and excuses to write poems and share them. Now, uh, Matthew King has a poem for us this week, too. You probably remember him. He um, um, has a website, birdsandbeesandblooms.com. He's a, f- a nature photographer, too. And um, this is his poem, Pando. Uh, maybe I'll read the little bit before. In Pando, um, Latin for I spread out, also known as the trembling giant, is a colony of an individual male quaking aspen determined to be a single living organism by identical genetic markers and assumed to have one massive underground root system. The plant is located in the Fremont River Ranger District of the Fish Lake National Forest at the western edge of the Colorado Plateau in south-central Utah. The root system of Pando, at an estimated 80,000 years old, so that really destroys my bristlecone pine, which is about 5,000 years old, is among the oldest known living organisms. It may have been as many as 10,000 years since Pando's uh, last successful flowering. 10,000 years since it had flowers. That's amazing. And uh, here's Matthew King's poem, Pando. Pando. Are we a tree? We are a tree, and we are one, but one tree we... What is one to be? There is no I in me. How many what are you? From branching points of view, we know ourself in undergrounded roots, our source we haven't seen but felt. Why are we old? We're born and raised in fire. How hot it's been and cold, you know, but we have stood off the pluvial sea. We're not the kind of wood that stores up centuries of records to be cored like mountain snow. We ring in years and hold them and release them as we go. Try all you want to kill me. Though we tremble still, we don't know how to die. We've never seen it done. We are the only one of me. We're young, and we will bloom again, and soon. You may be there to see. Thanks again. That's Matthew King with Pando. And um, as with most of Matthew's poems, I think he's smetted one every week for the last, like, three, four, five weeks or something. Uh, There's great rhymes in there. I I like his style of writing. Uh, Thanks so much for sharing that, Matthew King. Now, next week, the prompt is, and I'm going to do a better job of promoting this, and we're actually going to post it on, on Facebook and things like that, but uh, Megan's prompt for next week is, drumroll, 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 must be titled The Swimmer, must not use the words water or pool. Once again, that's next week's prompt by Megan, that is, must be titled The Swimmer, must not use the words water or pool. So write a poem about The Swimmer. And don't use the water or pool as words. And that's your prompt for this week. If you write a poem and uh, send it to me at openmic at rattle.com, I'll read it for you on air. And uh, if you give me your phone number or contact me over Skype, I will give you a call and you can read it yourself. That's how we're going to do it. Now, next week's show, first of all, let me say, um, rather the publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry, 
we've been in continuous publication since 1995, and we just do it for the love of poetry. We are unaffiliated with any other organization. And so if you enjoy what we do and you like this broadcast, please do click the like button and share and subscribe and uh, let all your friends know that this is a fun way to spend your Tuesday nights or uh, after the fact, as it may be. And that's all we really ask. Um, So um, we have an open mic show every uh, Sunday morning at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. That's for Poet Respond, which are poems about current events. So tune in then. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I think we're up to week six now, and I just love every Sunday morning now. It's like it's better than watching. I used to love uh, watching that Sunday morning show on CBS. That was my way I spent Sunday morning. I'd make some some eggs over easy, and uh, maybe read the newspaper and uh, watch Sunday morning. But now we get to enjoy Poetry Spot Live and and learn about current events through poetry, which is the best way to do it. And um, next week's guest is going to be William Trowbridge. Uh, he has a book that's just out called uh, Old Guy Superhero, the collected th- the complete poems. It's the entire Old Guy series. He's also the author of Ship of Fool, which is one of my favorite books of poems. Um, it's interesting. He's very similar to the last two weeks' guests in that he is very entertaining. Um, and I don't know if that's one of the, the central aspects of his poetry is that it's fun stuff. So... Um, Tune in next week, Tuesday, April 28th, for William Trowbridge. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week, and uh, I will see you soon. Good night.